0: Welcome today, once again, to the Someone To Tell It To podcast. We're so glad you're joining with us, and we hope that you will enjoy this episode. We certainly did, we say that all the time, but we are so privileged to be able to meet such incredible people. And today, today's guest is uh, a person who has been very involved in healthcare, in leadership, in administration, and he has um, just a, a, a tremendous ap- outlook on what is needed and what is, what is so important when it comes to leadership and in healthcare in particular. So we hope you'll learn a lot just as, as we did. We hope you'll be inspired by the things that he said and, and the way that he approaches his job, because we certainly are and we're very grateful for people like him who are in leadership and for the, the things that they see and the things that they are trying to do in order to to make, to make this world a much better place.
1: Our guest today is Jeffrey Roche, and he writes this about himself. Interested in learning a bit about me and how I became the heart leader? Pull up a seat. I'm an executive public figure, strategist, connector, and collaborator who has leveraged the skills that helped make me so successful. My recipe, empathetic leadership that focuses on others first as represented by my superpower of building meaningful relationships and human-centered connections, always daring to think and go big while fostering prosperous environments for change, and my proven track record of building ecosystem partnerships to drive new solutions and results. I am always seeking conversation and professional collaboration with trendsetters, disruptors, and executives Open to embracing change and systemic solutions in healthcare.
0: So welcome, Jeffrey, to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We'd like to start with you uh, with this conversation, w- where we like to start with all of our guests now, and that's just to ask you to tell us anything you would like about yourself.
2: Sure. Well, thank you both for the opportunity and, and uh, thank you for the work that you do. Um, my name, obviously, is Jeffrey Roach, uh, son of a nurse. Uh, you know, grew up actually in the Poconos uh, in Northeast Pennsylvania, uh, and I always say, uh, don't forget those humble beginnings uh, for one second. Uh, it's obviously where I was raised, uh, but also where I had the privilege to start my career uh, for a healthcare system there, and and really it was that role, uh, that experience that, in many ways, not only transformed me personally um but also professionally from a leadership perspective and um certainly I look back uh, throughout my 15 plus years of my career and I can point to pretty much every example of 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 where I grew as well as you know roles and and opportunities that I had to be part of some amazing teams that did amazing work and many of those people are still in my network today and and have continued to prosper and grow and so it's a something I always say you know to people don't forget your humble beginnings because there's so much that I know I would not be who I am today if I didn't have that, you know, unique experience.
1: I just love that phrase. One of the the ways that you started off, your your bio there is just saying that you're a son of a nurse. We'd just like to learn a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. So obviously my mom, you know, has had a huge impact in my life and obviously, you know, anyone that's this son or daughter knows the impact that a mother can certainly have or a parent can have. But for me, you know, growing up my mom, you know, was a single mom. I certainly had a father in my life, but he wasn't there every day and certainly wasn't as engaged as my mother was. And when I was 5 is when my mom became a nurse. She went to a community college, earned her registered nursing associate's degree. And you know, used to literally I can remember days where early on in her nursing career would take us in, you know, into the hospital. Would you know, even when she was in school, would take us to the childcare literally on campus and I can remember, you know, as a child, just being so amazed at how she was juggling all that. And then, you know, she would take on different shifts and, and, and all the work that she would do. The irony is that, you know, I had the privilege to then serve at the same hospital. My mom did many years later, she was not there at that time. She had moved on in her career, but what I experienced as a son is what my mom's colleagues experienced uh, of her in the profession. And so, you know, when they when I got there, they said they were like, "Oh my gosh, your mom did so much here." And one of the neatest things I had the opportunity to do was actually help expand an initiative that my mom started, which was really really cool. I obviously not clinical, but I was administratively responsible for a project that expanded our NICU, and ultimately, my mom was was part of a team that that actually started the NICU. And so, it's kind of a beautiful uh, example. Now, people say, "Why do you say you're the son of a nurse?" You are. It's really because. Nursing, as we all know in the workforce, is one of the number one issues talked about today as really one of the most challenging factors facing all of healthcare. And as a hospital leader and, and healthcare leader, I've made it a, a fundamental aspect of who I am to be an advocate for nurses and and be willing sometimes to even get into good trouble, challenging status quo for the field of nursing. And so that's really why I've, I've really leaned into that space.
0: Hmm. Can you tell us more about uh, about your passions? You know what what you learned from your mother, what what transpired throughout your life that that made you passionate about the things you're passionate about. So if you you can describe some of those things and and what they mean to you,
2: yeah. So there's certainly a lot that I'm passionate about. I would say without question, one of the threads that you know I learned even even you know as a young child, all the way through all the way through school, and, and then in college was certainly, you know, the importance of, of really leadership. And certainly that was definitely something that I saw, uh, you know, even in our household from my mom, you know, my mom really excelled in her nursing career, was a charge nurse and was a leader, you know, even as I referenced her work with, with starting a NICU. And what's interesting, though, is when I would talk with her later now, as, as I'm more mature and, and such and, and more experienced, and I've asked her, like, you know, about leadership, she would not have said she was a leader. Uh, At that time in nursing, which is oftentimes the case for a lot of people in clinical roles. Unless you hold a title, you may not always think that you're a leader. And that's true in the workplace too, where people, if they don't have a title of what some people think is a leadership title, they may not identify uh, as a leader. And so I've made it a passion of mine to help people understand that it's not about title, it's not necessarily about role. You can be a leader in whatever role uh, or whatever title you have. Uh, If you want to, act change if you want to influence the process the system if you want to build coalitions uh, if you want to lead initiatives there are so many exciting ways and so leadership has been a major thread and what's interesting for me is that when i started my career my ceo was also a nurse and so my mom will joke with me that she's like you just can't get nurses uh, out of your way and that experience too was a very unique one and and i would say that because i worked for a nurse ceo who truly believed in servant leadership, I had the blessing of, of being a part of a team that every day was truly serving. Yes, did we have times where we made mistakes? Absolutely. But from a leadership perspective, what I experienced uh, younger as a younger professional and a growing professional at that time was truly not just invigorating, but it transformed my career. Uh, and it really allowed me to not only gain more passion for, for the role of leadership, which is why you may also have seen, uh, for example, that I, I, I really coin and do a lot of work around heart leadership, leading with the heart that if a leader truly takes this extra step to get to know the folks that they work with and can lead with a connection, there's so much that we can all experience. And so those are some of the things I've also been extremely passionate my entire career on workforce development. Uh, particularly in transforming the healthcare workforce, uh, certainly with a focus on leadership, culture, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I've also been really passionate about advancing health equity, um, because I, I I do very strongly believe that while I sit here as a white privileged male, there are people in our society who don't have the same chance that I have to have access to care, to have good quality care simply because of where they live access to transportation access to food and so i've leaned into that my entire career as well and and sometimes that can be unpopular for certain communities and and i've never uh, looked back because you got to always be willing to do the right thing
1: you had used this phrase earlier on in fact it's how you started your your dialogue with us about never forgetting your humble beginnings and is has leadership been something that has been with you since you were a child? Have you always considered yourself a leader? I mean, I've always thought of this phrase, leaders are born, they're not made, or vice versa, depending on your views. You know, are there si- significant moments as, as a child that you remember back and you're like, yeah, I, I, I'm I cut out for exactly what I'm doing now?
2: You know, it, it's definitely interesting. I do, you know, I do believe sort of in both elements of of what you're talking about. I do believe certain people could be born to have an aspect of of different roles of leadership. Not to say, you'll never hear me say someone's born to be a leader, but you'll hear me say that they're born with aspects that could make them or grow them into a leader. And certainly I do believe that through experience, anybody has the opportunity to be a leader. And so for me, there's definitely a lot uh, of certainly examples. You know, even as a younger child, I can vividly remember in various different you know, sports and different activities that I really enjoyed bringing people together. I really enjoyed kind of building that community. Even among my group of friends, I was the type that always wanted to have community and that community feel. And so there's definitely elements that I go back. But I would say it was really in high school that really brought me to a place in my life where I saw the opportunity that that leadership could have. And part of that was through studying history and, and things like that. But also part of it was I started a club, uh, you know, in our high school that was focused actually on civic engagement, uh, but it was part of a national organization. And part of that role was, you know, was engaging with other clubs across the country doing that work. And part of that just kind of made me more excited about uh, what it could do to be a leader, uh, not just of that club, um, but also you know, within the school. And and then ultimately, when I went to college, I was fortunate to go to a, a university that really felt leadership was a core element of who we were as a student. And so I had a lot of not just studies on it, but a lot of really immersive engagement uh, from trainings to weeks upon weeks of going places to conferences and such. And so there's definitely a lot that I can look back at a huge connection without question.
0: In our listening work, we have heard from both sides the disconnection that often exists between healthcare providers and healthcare administrators that they don't necessarily see the world through the same lens that they they look at how to provide healthcare you know differently often can can you talk about that and what you know what you've seen what you've heard what you've experienced and what those differences might be and why
2: yeah. You know, it it it's a fascinating element. And I will say in my, you know, almost 10 years as a direct hospital administrator, again, not clinical, but privileged to work in many structures. You'll hear in healthcare I was called a dyad structure. I worked in dyad structures where there was a clinical leader of a of an enterprise and then there was an administrative leader of an enterprise. And in this case, I was the administrative leader, there was a clinical leader. And you know, I, I think just like any industry, there are times where certain leaders want to make decisions in a vacuum or they want to make decisions with an agenda. And sometimes they actually may have the right idea, but they just not, may not be thinking about the right process. I was fortunate to be really trained in a culture that believes strongly that if we were going to achieve patient excellence, we also had to achieve clinical excellence. And that meant we had to work as a team, whether clinical or non-clinical. I personally strongly, and people will hear me say this all the time, that our community hospitals back in the day, there's not as many left today because of all the mergers and acquisitions, but our community hospitals were, were actually the systems to point back to and still point to across the country where there's more that are doing exactly what your question refers to, that we're remembering that people are people first. And that we need to listen inten- intently and intentionally to hear their concerns as administrators uh, from everyone on the front lines, from environmental services, to food services, uh, to nursing, to radiology, to respiratory care, et cetera. And that when we do that, we're making the best decisions that we can. And, and they're going to come along with us in a greater chance if we do that. And so in my system, which was Pocono Health System, now as part of Lehigh Valley, and again, I could tell you a lot of changes that happened even in that merger process from a culture standpoint, from what it was like to what it became. You know, we, we had leaders, for example, my, one of my senior vice presidents had been there for 40 plus years, uh, just retired a couple of years ago after almost 45 years of service at that hospital. And what he taught us was, he called it fresh eyes, and he would make every non-clinical leader on his division team round with a clinical leader. And so I had the opportunity to round with a clinical leader in the cath lab and round with a clinical leader on different cardiac floors. And it was my responsibility to listen to them, hear from them, and see opportunities for improvement with them. And what was powerful was not only was I learning from them, but there would be things that they would share with me that they would be sharing through their clinical leadership process that wasn't getting addressed. And now I had an opportunity to bring it in through a different process and could get it addressed. And so we've got to work together. The whole idea of dyad, when you study the word dyad in healthcare, was to bring us together to enhance and improve the clinical experience that ultimately benefits the patients. And so the idea of an administrator that's non-clinical and the idea of a clinical leader or clinician coming together it's supposed to be the idea of working as one. And I do believe that culturally and, and organizationally, we've gotten away from that in healthcare and we've got to return to it really quickly because our patients are the ones that are suffering and the staff. And there's no reason why we have burnout when when we study those issues.
1: I'm remembering back to a time when we've done a lot of work with someone to tell to in healthcare over the years. And we had done a presentation to a group of doctors and nurses, maybe 50 or 60 doctors and nurses. One, uh, it was a winter morning. And so I think all of these doctors and nurses were coming in already with a bit of a chip on their shoulder because there's no days off for healthcare workers. Uh, they're not going to call off. There's, There's no shutting down the hospital on a snow day, but we, we showed up for this presentation and the CEO was there and he just didn't seem like he was connecting with the messages we were conveying about empathy and compassion. And yet we had several doctors and nurses who during the question and answer time, they would raise their hands and were very engaged. And one doctor in particular raised his hand and just said, I absolutely love what you're presenting here because I have to be reminded consistently that it's not about meeting quotas when I go into a a patient's office, to to, to engage with a patient. And I try to give them my full attention and be fully present and engaged. And then during the break, we had taken a break in between a couple of our modules of our training and the CEO came up to us and you could just tell he was not happy with some of the the information we had presented. And he just said, yeah, that doctor over there, he and I just are at odds all the time because he wants to spend additional time with the patients. But here I am as the CEO and we need to meet our quotas. We need to meet our, our metrics for the month. And so by the end of that day, we could celebrate the fact that we do think that they were able to come to a level of understanding because I think that's a big part of it is you have to be able to understand what each of us is bringing to the work environment. You know, you have a hospital administrator who's got to make really tough decisions uh, to make sure that you have funding for all of your staff, but then you have a doctor who is in direct service to the patient and the CEO needs to know without his doctor, he has no uh, clientele. So yeah, I, I don't know. Th- that that story has always stuck out to us of we think that's a tension that's pretty common actually probably in a lot of work environments, not just in healthcare. And so maybe a question for you today is just what kind of transformations and cultural changes do you believe are most needed in healthcare and the workspace?
2: Now is the time that you really have to look at the chief learning officer roles and those types of roles that are truly transformative and get them out of HR have them report directly to the CEO and ensure that every day you're asking about your people. Uh, Every day you're rounding. Uh, A CEO should never be sitting in their office. A CEO should be out and about. Yes, will they be in meetings? 100%. But in healthcare, they should be out and about. I worked for two CEOs. There was a major difference between the two. One was always out and about. Yes, did she meet? Absolutely. But she always said, I need to hear and feel what my clinicians are dealing with. And I need to see my non-clinical people, too, because they're important as well. And so I think we've got to get back to some of those basics. When you look at the power of rounding in healthcare, not only does it benefit our patients, but it also benefits our staff. And when we literally are intentional and we can round as a leader, think about what that allows the staff to feel. My CEO is here. I'll give you an example. My name is Jeffrey and my former CEO's name was Jeff. I came into the emergency room as an administrative leader on a third shift once and they thought I was the CEO, which which some people thought, well, that's nice for you. And I said, no, no, it's not good because that means they haven't seen him. So you want to know what I did? I let him know, hey, they think I'm the CEO. You may want to get down there. And what do you think he did? He got down there because he didn't want to not be known as the CEO. But the story there and and kudos to him because he he didn't take that. He, he took my guidance and did it. And you know what? It's the third shift. But those people are important too. And so I think we're just at an inflection point, I hope, in healthcare where we will truly realize that the most important aspect of our system are our people. And when we realize that, our patient engagement will go up, our quality of care will go up, and every aspect of our healthcare system will be back to where, at one point, you know, we were doing a bit better. I think in many ways, Uh, I'm not, you're not going to hear me say we've achieved excellence because it doesn't matter whether you're Mayo or Cleveland Clinic or, you know, Lancaster General or Penn State Health.
0: It leads me to ask you and talk, for you to talk about the power of empathy. We believe that empathy is such a significant factor in in so many aspects of life, but uh, particularly in healthcare, empathy can go a long way for what everyone is dealing with, whether it is, is patients or those who are serving the patients in, in whatever way they are. And h- could you talk about that, how you see empathy working and how you, you the importance of it, the, the, the value of it in, in the care that's being provided?
2: Yeah. I, I often say that in healthcare and even in the workplace, when someone demonstrates empathy, it truly is a make it or break it moment. And the reason I'm, I go to that level is that when you look in our world today, where mental health is truly an epidemic and a crisis, how we demonstrate respect, concern, and can, and can literally move forward to help another person seek to understand what they're going through, not that I can say I'm walking in their shoes, but to help them understand that I want to walk with them in their shoes makes a huge difference. And- I think, particularly from a clinical end, to your earlier point around physicians and providers saying, you know, I got to be able to spend more time with my patients. Yes, I know RVUs are important for the financial end, absolutely, but there's been model after model proven that if a physician or a clinician has time to spend with their patients, the ROI is there. And and so, you know, what we've got to do is put our clinicians and Everybody in a situation in healthcare and in other industries where we are truly there to care for one another. And for me, empathy is a great opportunity to not only influence that type of a process, but literally help another person achieve what may not be achievable without me extending that hand, me extending that appreciation, and really demonstrating to them that I'm here for them, I'm with them. And from a leadership standpoint, it is awesome when you see a leader do that. And I've seen some phenomenal C-suite leaders in healthcare demonstrate empathy in a way that not only transforms lives, but transforms every aspect of culture. And I would encourage people in healthcare to, uh, I always tell people, go back and watch the Cleveland Clinic video. There's a, a phenomenal Cleveland, you know, you probably have seen it. Like we were trained on that. And in my healthcare system, we called it on off offstage. And it sounds corny to some, but we were literally role playing out those elements because we felt very strongly when we saw that video that there was work we needed to do to have more empathy uh, for the patients. And I'll give you a real life example. I dealt with some resistance from leaders in my healthcare system when uh, I was rolling out initiatives to support the homeless in our community. And some of the exact verbatim quotes from some of them was, they just want to sleep in our hospital. I said, well, yeah, because it's warm, there's food, it's like housing. And so the answer is not kick them out. The answer is how do we work within our community to find them access to that? Uh, And so I faced resistance uh, on those initiatives. But guess what? When we made it happen, those same people came back to me and said, I want to serve that population because now I see what you all were experiencing. And I was wrong. And some of those same people then joined us when we provided clinics, uh, provided free, you know, donated their volunteer time to be a part of those initiatives. And uh, some people would say to me, well, why'd you even let them be if that's how they started? I said, well, we all learn and we all grow. And so for me, it's truly the way to make all the difference, particularly in healthcare."
1: Yeah. Could you just explain a little bit more of like, how did your level of empathy develop you talk about some of these leaders that you serve, you've served alongside who expressed deep empathy. Uh, how did that change the way that you look at your role and your future roles?
2: Yeah. You know, first of all, I, to your point, it is a journey. And I will be the first to say there. I'm always still learning and growing in this, in this important work as well. You know, for me, it grew without question through experience. I was fortunate, you know, to early on in my career work for leaders who were so seasoned or so people focused, who truly cared more about the people they led than truly themselves. They truly cared so much about their teams. In fact, I worked for leaders, you know, at Pocono who would literally ask every person in the room for their opinion and their view on a situation before they would ever share theirs. That's transformational. And I think you know I would challenge leaders today: How many really do that? Not many. Not at least in my experience over the past you know dozen years pa- uh, post that experience. I see more leaders always telling us what they think before they engage everyone else. And for some cases, that may be okay. But what I learned in that experience was why my leaders were doing that was they knew that the power of the answers was with the people, particularly in healthcare, and so. For me, that journey has been as I continue to learn and grow and have had the privilege to lead teams. How do I mentor and support others and empower them to know that we all are going to make mistakes at times, but we're going to grow together and we're going to learn together? And how do I, as a leader, understand, you know, that they may be going something, you know, through something difficult, but we can make it work. I'll give you an example. I had an employee once who Literally uh, came to me and was like, I just don't think I'm going to be able to do this because I'm, you know, went through a divorce, uh, was a single mom, was in a leadership role, uh, didn't feel that she would be able to balance everything. And I said to her, you can. And she said, well, that's nice that you believe in me, but I don't believe in myself. And I said, well, we're going to work together because I'm confident that that belief that you are at today will change when we work together. And so I worked with her. And I challenged human resources and I challenged other leaders to say, you know what, she's a single mom with children. And at the end of the day, for me, it was like going back to what I was like as a child. And so for me, I said, we'll create a new work structure. We'll create new ways of going about this. If you need to do this with your daughter, guess what? Work's going to stop at that moment. You're going to do that with your daughter. And when the time comes for you to chip back in, you'll chip back in. And guess what? No one suffered we all achieved all of our goals. And she's still in that vice president role today. And so, uh, but yet, you know, I'll give you another example. She worked for a previous leader where she had the same challenge. He didn't care at all. Didn't care at all, which is why when she had the chance to leave, she left to come work with me because we had previously worked together and she knew that she would have that level of support. And so for me, it's those types of things. I'll give you another example. I had a, and this will show some level of tenacity on me, but I had a a phenomenal colleague that was part of my team that I worked with at my hospital that went through, you know, in her, in her 17 years at that healthcare system had 15 different bosses, you know, talk about, talk about interesting culture. Right. So, uh, I was her 14th boss and I was her last boss in Pocono and then Lehigh Valley. She had a different boss when we, when we became part of the system. And when I was the 14th boss for her, uh, I knew that she had dreams to become a manager. And her previous boss was part of the C-suite team, the, the cabinet of the healthcare system. And he had also tried to get her promoted. HR said, no, she doesn't have a bachelor's degree. She can't earn the opportunity to be a manager. And so I fought back and, you know, when I had the opportunity and was asked to lead that department that she was a part of, I said to my senior vice president, I know this is going to probably be unpopular, but I'm not giving up on this. And he said, you've got my 100% support. He said, you tell me when you need me, but I'm going to let you do it because I want you to have this win should it happen. And I continued to work with human resources. I found every opportunity to change their perspective. I looked at other people that had reached leadership roles who didn't have a college degree. I, I did my research. I produced that, presented that. And when I met with the leadership team in HR, they, they said to me, well, we're not, we are not prepared to make this change. And I said, I am. Tomorrow I will announce that she's the manager. And whether you want to come with me or not will be up to you. But she's a leader and it's what exactly it needs. And they said, Jeffrey, do what exactly you think is right just go ahead and do it and i said thank you i was going to and they did they followed through they gave, made sure the benefits changed they did all that they needed to do and and she went on to become a, you know a phenomenal manager phenomenal manager and i had people afterwards say to me i'm amazed that you just didn't give up because you you could have you could have hurt yourself in that process with hr and i said you don't give up when you're demonstrating empathy and the interesting point again was she was a single mom, and so I knew I knew what she uh, had been through. In fact, I I'm not a pastor, but but I, I actually did her daughter's wedding uh, a couple months ago because she asked me to to officiate for that wedding, and and she said to you know, her daughter said to me, she said, you've been there with my mom since I was a kid, and so for me it was it was always important as a leader to always be there for your team. Always be there and, and find ways to show them that you can help them achieve what is possible.
0: That's a phenomenal story. I appreciate you telling that, sharing that with, with all of us because we, people, need, people can learn from stories like that and examples like that. So important.
2: Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It to podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website wondersfound.org or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast.
0: We know that you like creating meaningful relationships with people, that that's that's something that you value deeply. How do you, and I think you may have already started to hit on some of those things, but how do you create the safe spaces in order for people to to, to have meaningful conversations, conversations of depth and and intimacy and vulnerability that need to happen, and that that will strengthen and deepen a relationship. But, but, But it's not always easy to get there. How do you set the stage, so to speak, to create a safe space for those things to happen?
2: Yeah. You know, it's definitely one of those things where to your point, you have to be authentic. And so what I have learned is, to your point about vulnerability, we've got, a, particularly in leadership, we have to be, we've got to be authentic. We can't have this barrier up that we don't deal with this or we don't face this. And what I've learned, and I have a, a phenomenal friend who has coached me uh, on this and, and and appropriately held me accountable. Uh, when, you know, for example, he has said to me in the past, he said, boy, he said, the Jeffrey I know is not always the Jeffrey that I see portrayed on LinkedIn. You're so professional. He's like, that's not what I see in you. He said, yes, do I see professional? Yeah, but I also see someone that can smile. And he said, I see somebody who can walk in a room and whether people are crying and upset, have can have them walk out and think that there's hope. And so for me, with with folks like that, that I always call my personal board of advisors who have coached me held me accountable, will always do so. I've been challenged to always think about, you know, that, that I've got to come in as my authentic self. I've got to create a space that really is authentic to them as well. They've got to have a sense of belonging in that space. They have to have psychological safety in that space, which may mean I have to also get extremely vulnerable. And sometimes I've learned, like, depending on the situation, you know, Oftentimes people may think, you know, all of us live this, this life where we haven't faced challenges and faced mistakes. And some of the times when I've, when I've faced this, I've actually had to be very honest and clear with the, with the other person or the other team that guess what? I've been there too. And in those examples, so much can be learned. So much can be shared. And there's a, there's a phenomenal project that, that a good friend of mine is leading And it's this idea that people cover who they are, particularly in the workplace or in certain cultures and in certain environments, because they're afraid of how people may judge them or they're concerned for their job. And I really, when I was, when I first learned about that project, which was about a year ago, I was at the University of Colorado, Denver at a, a seminar training. And when I first learned about that, it really struck me because when you really think about that in the workplace... I'm sure you've all been in experiences where, from a cultural standpoint, you could see how that's probably very true. It struck me to say, wow, we've got to, as leaders, really ensure that everyone has a sense of belonging and everyone can be.
0: We know that you like creating meaningful relationships with people, that that's that's something that you value deeply. How do you and I think you may have already started to hit on some of those things, but how do you create the safe spaces in order for people to, to, to have meaningful conversations, conversations of depth and, and intimacy and vulnerability that need to happen and that, that will strengthen and deepen a relationship. But, but, but it's not always easy to get there. How do you set the stage, so to speak, to create a safe space for those things to happen?
2: Yeah. You know, it's definitely one of those things where, to your point, you have to be authentic. And so what I have learned is, to your point about vulnerability, we've got, particularly in leadership, we have to be, we've got to be authentic. We can't have this barrier up that we don't deal with this or we don't face this. And what I've learned, and I have a, a phenomenal friend who has coached me uh, on this and, and and appropriately held me accountable Uh, when, you know, for example, he has said to me in the past, he said, boy, he said, the Jeffrey I know is not always the Jeffrey that I see portrayed on LinkedIn. You're so professional. He's like, that's not what I see in you. He said, yes, do I see professional? Yeah, but I also see someone that can smile. And he said, I see somebody who can walk in a room and whether people are crying and upset, have can have them walk out and think that there's hope. And so for me, with with folks like that, that I always call my personal board of advisors who have coached me, held me accountable, will always do so, I've been challenged to always think about you know that, that I've got to come in as my authentic self. I've got to create a space that really is authentic to them as well. They've got to have a sense of belonging uh, in that space. They have to have psychological safety uh, in that space, which may mean I have to also get extremely vulnerable. And sometimes I've learned, like, depending on the situation, you know, oftentimes people may think, you know, all of us live this, this life where we haven't faced challenges and faced mistakes. And some of the times when I've, when I've faced this, I've actually had to be very honest and clear with the, with the other person or the other team, like, guess what? I've been there too. And in those examples, so much can be learned, so much can be shared and, there's a, there's a phenomenal project that, that a good friend of mine is leading. And it's this idea that people cover who they are, particularly in the workplace or in certain cultures and in certain environments, because they're afraid of how people may judge them or they're concerned for their job. And I really, when I, was, when I first learned about that project, which was about a year ago, I was at the University of Colorado Denver at a, at a, a seminar training And when I first learned about that, it really struck me because when you really think about that in the workplace, I'm sure you've all been in experiences where from a cultural standpoint, you could see how that's probably very true. It struck me to say, wow, we've got to, as leaders, really ensure that everyone has a sense of belonging and everyone can be who they are. And that may not always be easy. Um, because we may have different values, different qualities, but ultimately we're people. And if we can find a way of building community, that's where I've seen the power. If we can somehow build community, we don't all have to agree, but if we can build community around our mission, vision, values, uh, if we can build community around our goals, our strategic direction, you know, just ways for us to connect and be willing to be personal and also professional, we can grow together and we can really achieve you know, that, that impossible and make it possible.
1: Jeffrey, we have a uh, six module training that we take organizations through. We actually do a lot of work in healthcare. We have a lot of practitioners who go through our training. We also have administrators as well. And I know one of our, you've actually touched upon our second module, which is creating the space for listening to happen, for empathy to happen but one of our last modules is module 6 and it's just around self-care and caring well for ourselves because when we are highly empathetic and compassionate and need to be it's draining uh, for us as leaders and so how do you yourself take care of yourself in order to do the work that you do every day and to be passionate and in, and effective in doing it
2: yeah you know this is definitely to your point one of the one of the other aspects that I think really creates somewhat of the challenge and crisis and leadership that we have today, right? Because, I mean, the Surgeon General's report last year is an eye-opener and should be an eye-opener that we've got to also address mental health in the workplace and, and really think about these issues really intentionally. And so for me, this has always also been a learning and growing opportunity. And for me, at least, what I have learned is I've got to start my day not with work I've got to start my day, you know, doing some level of exercise. And so everyone has to find what, what that is for them. But for me, you know, my, my workouts, particularly on my Pelotons and whether I do, you know, the Peloton bike or the Peloton tread indoors or or do my Peloton work outdoors for me, it has just been a phenomenal way to escape what I know I'm going to be heading into from a professional end, but also really focus uh, on my personal uh, health and wellness. I also, you know, certainly have found, you know, phenomenal, great value and in, in obviously not always, right? Because as a parent, there are sometimes our kids stress us out just as I stressed my my parents out, but great value and, in, in, you know, laughter and getting to see my children, my three boys experience life and get to see them in sports and get to see them at school and get to see them doing, you know, various activities. And in fact, you know, this morning went for a run and my eight-year-old came with me and and, um, and sometimes he's like, come on, daddy, I'm going faster than you. And, but at the end, I I finished a little longer and he didn't. So I, we, we had a little bit of fun, uh, talking about that, but the power of that is, is still, you know, finding that balance. Right. And so for me, it's interesting, but I tell people all the time, if I don't start my day out like that, there's a, there's definitely a difference in how I feel during the day, not just from a health perspective, but from a mind, from a mind, body, spirit perspective, and so for me, that has been really important. As a leader, it's also important that I espouse that and encourage the other, uh, other members of the team to do that as well. And I will tell you, that's where I have a lot of work to do. Uh, my colleagues will tell me all the time, like, when you're on vacations, we still see things from you. Uh, please disconnect. And that's, you know, from a healthcare perspective, that was always challenging coming up through that culture because it was a 24-7 element. So that's still a learning thing. And I'm, I will always be honest with people about that, that that's still a learning thing. But what I have done is encouraged the team to, Hey, you know, even if I send it, that doesn't mean you respond. Don't feel obligated. It's just something that I've got to, got to have out there, but still a learning opportunity for me. Cause I know how, I know there's science on that as well.
1: I just love that word that you used earlier. And I think there, there's a lot to it is just escape. Like, what are the things we should all have ways that we escape what we do professionally. It could be for me, it's running. For Michael, it's running. For you, it's using the Peloton. Um, We should all have ways to just decompress. And uh, it's just essential, especially those of us who are in leadership roles because we deal with some heavy lifting every single day. We gotta make a lot of decisions. So in order to make those weighty decisions, we have to be able to um, find those outlets uh, where we're not thinking about those weighty decisions so that we can come back in and make hard decisions and and feel confident about the decision making that we've made.
0: This topic is particularly germane to Tom because as we're recording this, he's leaving tomorrow for vacation. So he's going to forget about this, all of this for a week. And as uh, so I you know, it's, it's much needed and, and he's really looking forward to it. So it's, 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 it's so important. And we, we support one another in that and make sure that we are taking the time we need as well to, to disengage and to escape. So I want to ask you a question uh, about something that's been in the news in, in the last week or so since right before we have you know recorded this it's the recent supreme court decision about affirmative action in higher in higher education and want to ask you your thoughts and if you're willing to share them and your your opinions on that and how in particular this decision may affect people of color who want to get into healthcare people who are are passionate about it, but with this decision, it might be more difficult for them to get the education and training they need to do what they would like to do. If you if you were willing to talk about that, we'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah. You know, first of all, let me just say that I think it's sad in the United States that we've come to a time where the 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 general view of the Supreme Court is very different than what it once was. We've got to, as a citizenry, really think about that because the the court was never supposed to be political, and it doesn't matter where our opinions are when you read and when you view some of the last several cases. There's a del- definitely a lot of elements of of what we would consider politics in the court, and I think that there's some example of that in this case. I mean, you you know, look, I there are aspects of affirmative action that I know absolutely can be discussed and can be questioned but I think when we talk about education we have to be honest uh, with the fact that the foundation of higher education was 100 percent designed developed for white privileged males fact no one can debate it it's the fact and over time we've had to make necessary changes to 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 really create a more perfect educational system that welcomes and invites people from all different backgrounds. And I know as the first person to go to higher education in my family, four year at least, my mom was the first for two year, but I know as the first person to achieve that, you know, my mom was born in Germany, you know, she, you know, came to United States and you know, we were still privileged, but I know even from her example it was a bit more challenging for her than for other people in her program. So what I've learned not just through that experience, but also have had the opportunity in my career to lead a global health equity impact scholarship, actually, that funded education, particularly for people who couldn't afford the same level of education that I and others, for example, could afford, was that given a person, giving another person a leg up can make all the difference in their career. And so while I'll sit here and say I'm not happy with the court's decision, I do think that this is another chance or higher education to think deeply about how they transform their business model, and I do think that there's some encouraging steps that have been taken. In fact, at University of North Carolina, you may have seen, you know, made a decision recently that said for any family uh, making less than eighty thousand dollars, we'll give full tuition, and we will. And they said specifically, we will look at race in that. So they're taking a decision now. Someone may appeal that, right? They may take it back to the court. Uh, they're not doing it as affirmative action they're they're doing it carefully through the lens of of scholarship and someone may challenge that and i'm sure some people will for political reasons but the reality of it is, is is when you read why they're doing it they're doing it because they believe strongly that the workforce in healthcare and other industries also has to look like those that they serve and i can't stress enough that in healthcare there are so many data points that we've seen that this is 100% the case. Look at maternal mortality. And this is where I've gotten in a lot of debates with people when they, when they bring this topic up. But if you look at maternal mortality, uh, there are studies, uh, in fact, I've used them as a graduate professor in many courses on ethics, where well-documented studies that are NIH and many other elements of, of different studies that clearly show that if you have a provider of color treating a patient of color, the chances in maternal mortality significantly go down. Fact. In the same study, you have a a provider that does not have the same culture, same ethnicity to the patient. The chances of that maternal mortality go up. Fact. Well, here's where we change this. We've got to be willing and able to change it. And As somebody that's led a project like that, what I learned and and what I've seen, particularly from some of the scholarship recipients, has been true transformation. And so, as I always say, you can't get down over these decisions. You have to realize that you've got to think creatively, you've got to go back to the foundation, and, and we've got to be thoughtful here because whether it's STEM, whether it's many other fields, education, healthcare, any aspect of STEM, we have a lot of work to do to diversify the workforce. And I'm confident that the right institutions and and the right people will continue to find solutions. And again, they may get appealed. They may get back to the court. Maybe the court will look different at that time when that happens, too. And maybe there'll be a different decision. I will say I do find it interesting, too, to think that there is a justice on the court that benefited from affirmative action but ruled against it. That that to me is also interesting. Uh, But I'll leave the politics out. That's for other people to study. But as a student of political science, I find that interesting because uh, in my opinion, if you benefited from it, you should have recused yourself in the case uh, because obviously you have, uh, in fact, in fact, there's another justice on the court who was on the other side of the aisle. She did recuse herself in, in the Harvard case because she went to Harvard and so she felt she should recuse herself, you know, and so as somebody who's been an elected official, been elected myself, you know, to the school board, but obviously not not to other roles, but to a school board before. You know, if you have a conflict of interest, you recuse yourself. And and that's something I hope we'll also see more in government too. We can't be ruling. We can't be voting on things if we have a conflict of interest. It's not good for our democracy.
1: Well, this has been <clears throat> just a delightful conversation. We've learned so much from you. You're just so wise, so bright. And we could, gosh, we'll have A lot, a lot more conversations with you into the future just to learn, continue to learn from you. Maybe one of the ways we could just end our conversation here is just we know that you and your family are in the process of moving from central Pennsylvania to North Carolina to take a new position. Just what's next for you? And not just even just in terms of your job, but just what, what do you, what would you like to see happen in the world?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, as we all know, when you make a move of of a family of five, my whole career and and I mean, even though I've worked outside of Pennsylvania, my whole career where I've lived has always been in Pennsylvania. So in some ways, it's bittersweet. You know, what's next for me besides op- obviously this this exciting leadership opportunity with Siemens Health Ears, which is entirely focused on transforming the healthcare workforce ecosystem, is is also you know going to be continued to focus. Uh, in those areas, and and um, obviously having bat- been in the academic system, been in the healthcare system, uh, I'm I do believe I'm uniquely positioned to build coalitions and build ecosystem solutions there. But I'll also say that um, I'm going to continue without question to lean into these areas of leadership and 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 build meaningful, authentic connections that that hopefully will have a benefit and positive impact on uh, on on the healthcare ecosystem and. And, and obviously, you know, we're just returning uh, from a two week vacation in Europe. And so it really was an awesome experience there because my, my, my family, my boys, my wife and I had the awesome experience of actually being with my mom and she got to show us the house she was born in, in Germany. We got to see family while we were there. We got to see her humble beginnings. And, you know, that's an awesome experience and certainly one I don't take lightly as a family because you know you know those moments and that history is really important. And and so, you know, as we go into this next level, I'm excited too that my parents are, are moving with us. So they'll be here. In fact, my my parents bought a house literally like 0. 0.3 miles from our house. And so that's really important, not just to me, but also to to our family that we have that connection. And so I'm looking forward to starting anew here in North Carolina but continuing to be engaged globally in this work. And, and certainly there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Well, Jeffrey, thank you for being with us today. We really appreciated it. You, you have a lot, you do, as Tom said, have a lot of wisdom, a lot of it that you were able to impart. And we, we, we've benefited from it. We, we know that our, our listeners and viewers will too. And so thank you for taking the time and for sharing everything you did. It, it, is, it is
2: deeply appreciated. Thank you very much as well. And thank you both as well.
1: One of the things that we loved about this conversation today is how Jeffrey began the dialogue with us reflecting on his childhood. And he's just used the simple phrase of just never forgetting your humble beginnings. And by the end of the conversation, you can see how much his childhood shaped him as an individual. He started off his bio stating that his mom was a nurse and he was the son uh, of, of a nurse. And that's how he began his conversation with us, which was fascinating because that's a unique way to to start off your dialogue and your bio. Uh, but I think it, it really shows how much his childhood shaped who he is as an individual, uh, the compassionate, empathetic, strong leader that he is.
0: I also... I. I loved all of that, and I also love the fact that later on in the in the conversation, he talked about getting in good trouble. And if, if anyone who knows some some historical perspective there, the the late congressman, great civil rights icon John Lewis, uh, talked about getting in good trouble. That that's what we were all supposed to do to help make this world a better place. And Jeffrey Jeffrey is one who is. Is getting in good trouble, you know, trying to change in his case healthcare in particular, and and how people are are treated, how they are seen, how they are well, how they how they are served, and um, we just we appreciate his perspective uh, so very much. We also appreciate so very much you joining us again today. We're grateful that you have and we hope that if you've enjoyed this episode that you will consider supporting it financially to enable us to continue this work of having wonderful guests who have wonderful things to share be on the podcast to to inspire to educate and and to help us all to understand the world and what the world needs in a better way so please go to our website, somewiththetelletoo.org, and you, you can do that. You can also learn more about us and the work that we do and the ways we serve people to help make the world a better place and especially to help the world to listen. So thank you for listening today. And we say goodbye for now until we listen again.